Welcome to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. You can listen to UIC Radio at uicradio.org or on the Radio FX app. I'm Professor Floros, and I'm thrilled to welcome University of Chicago political scientist Dr. Paul Staniland to the classroom today, where we'll talk about U.S. involvement and withdrawal from Afghanistan. So let's get started on the Politics Classroom, recorded on September 8, 2021. to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and you can reach me with comments or questions on Twitter at Dr. Floros. Today, I'm happy to be speaking with Dr. Paul Staniland, an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Professor Staniland received his bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Chicago before earning his PhD in political science from the Massachusetts, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, more frequently referred to as MIT. In addition to being a professor at UChicago, he is also a non-resident scholar in the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is the author of many academic articles and two books from Cornell University Press, Networks of Rebellion, Explaining Insurgent Cohesion and Collapse, and Ordering Violence, Explaining Armed Group State Relations from Conflict to Cooperation. Professor Staniland, welcome to the Politics Classroom. Great to be here, Kate. Thank you. So before we get into talking about Afghanistan, I wanted to ask you about how you decided to focus on South Asia politics in general, but South Asia in particular, rather than maybe another region of the world. Yeah, so I, I, I started being interested generally in international relations and politics in college. And so international relations classes, comparative politics classes, and I went to graduate school. It wasn't until kind of toward the end of my second year in graduate school that I decided to focus on South Asia. And a large part of that is because the region just had a lot going on that was relevant to my, my interests. I took some language classes, I did some field work for my dissertation, and I was able to kind of begin what is still always a very ongoing process of learning about what's going on in the region. So I focused primarily on India, but I also kind of have done research in and or about other countries in the region, Myanmar, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, to, to uh, Afghanistan. And so to me, it was a place that was, I think, understudied relative to its importance, mm -hmm. to some degree accessible in terms of being able to show up and do some research okay. and just, you know, intrinsically really interesting to me, especially as I started getting into it, I got more and more interested. Okay, so you mentioned that you did field work in Myanmar and so I have a question. What are we supposed to call that country? So this is an issue that, uh, so it's uh, sometimes known as Burma, sometimes called Myanmar. I would say these days, most people, regardless of their views of the government, say Myanmar. Uh, the US government, I believe, still says Burma. So sometimes what people do is they have Burma slash Myanmar. 
Um, I've mostly ended up just calling it Myanmar, which you know is, I think, generally pretty standard practice among even people very opposed to the current government. Because um, it, it is the military dictatorship that changed the name from Burma to Myanmar, is that right? That's right. So that was part of a whole kind of political attempt to reconsolidate power in the late 80s and early 1990s. And so for a long time, Khalid Myanmar was seen, at least in some circles, as kind of like siding on with, with the military. But then mm. kind of in recent years, especially once there was something like a transition to democracy, Myanmar is also what the civilian government was saying. Um, and so it became kind of more normal. There's still a range of opinion on this, but I think it's fair to say most people most of the time say Myanmar, not Burma. We'll have to have you back in the classroom to talk about this because Burma is is an ethnic group, Burmese, and but there are like 25 different ethnic groups. So I don't know what Myanmar actually means, but not calling your country after one group, there might be a reason to do that. But we'll have to, we'll, we'll put a pin in that one and come back. Uh, one more question I wanted to ask you before we go to Afghanistan is, uh, so on your, I read on your CV, your resume, that you did your field work in Burma, Myanmar, India, Sri Lanka, Singapore, Thailand, and Northern Ireland. So I'm wondering, given your focus on South Asia, how did Northern Ireland enter the mix? Was this just a cagey way of being able to spend time in, in Northern Ireland or uh, is it? So the answer there is about money. And uh, so I was <laughs> interested for my dissertation, I, I was doing work on, on insurgent groups and militia groups and kind of their organizational. And I was able to get some money to go to Northern Ireland for a couple of summers. And that became part of the dissertation. It was mm. very valuable. I learned a lot. Uh, it was kind of a, a relatively friendly introduction to field research um, in an environment that like was a little different than what I was used to, but also was not like an active war zone. Sure. And, you know, so it was, I learned a lot. It was part of the dissertation, but it ended up just not being part of the book or my future research going forward. I never actually published anything out of it, but it was a good experience. I learned a lot um, and it helped shape my thinking on a lot of other kind of broader theoretical issues as well. Okay, so not just for vacation. Not, no, definitely not. It's, it's a lovely, very interesting place. I recommend it to everyone, but not, um, not, it was you not just a, a, a vacation spot. Let me put it that way. Okay. Okay, so now I want to turn to the topic of the day, which is Afghanistan. And because the United States has completed its withdrawal recently from Afghanistan, many people only think about U.S. involvement there since 9-11. But the U.S. previously had been involved in Afghanistan during the 1980s. So I tend to get too bogged down in history, but I think it's real. the history of Afghanistan is really fascinating, first of all but also to understand the Taliban and why the U.S. invaded Afghanistan 20 years ago, where we are today, et cetera, I think we have to, to, to do a little history. So I'm gonna to try to get through this uh, moderately quickly. After a series of coups in the late 1970s, a Marxist government came to power in Afghanistan. And when you hear stories about women in Kabul walking around in miniskirts, this was the time the government um, that was in charge. So this government faced an insurgency from a loosely knit coalition of groups from different regions of the country, different ethnic groups. And this coalition was called the Mujahideen or Holy Warriors. Uh, so with the Marxist government under threat, the Soviet Union invaded in December of 1979 in order to support them. 
And due to the ongoing Cold War rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union, the United States began a massive covert campaign to fund and arm the Mujahideen. So with US and Pakistani support, the Mujahideen held its own against the Soviets, finally forcing the Soviets to withdraw in February of 1989. Now with the Soviets gone, the US ceased most of its involvement or maybe all of its involvement in Afghanistan but the Marxist government was able to hold on to power until 1992 when it was finally overthrown. Now, without the common enemy of the Soviets and the Marxist government, the different factions of the Mujahideen began fighting one another for control of the country, leading to continued fighting until 1996 when the Taliban took control of the country. The Taliban grew out of the Afghan refugee population who had fled to Pakistan during the Soviet occupation. Taliban means students, and the most common story about the creation of the Taliban is that these fighters were trained at religious schools in Pakistan where they were taught a very draconian form of Islam. So they invaded Afghanistan in 1994 and slowly took over the country largely without fighting until they captured the capital, Kabul, in April 1996. So Afghanistan under the Taliban was very different than under the Marxist regime and even under the Mujahideen. So women had to cover themselves fully and could not leave home without a male guardian. Girls were not allowed to attend school. Men had to grow their beards and justice, which I put in quotes, uh, was brutal. And from a Western point of view, almost medieval. So Al-Qaeda, the group behind 9-11 was allowed safe haven in Afghanistan under the Taliban regime from which it planned the 9-11 attacks. So after 9-11, the Bush administration demanded that the Taliban hand over Osama bin Laden, but they refused. So I'm gonna stop there and ask you if that summary was, if I got anything wrong, or if there was anything critical about that history that I missed, or if I misinterpreted anything that you think is important going forward. No, I think that gives a really nice kind of general overview of you know, the trajectory, it's super complicated, but, sure. you know, 30,000 feet up, I think that gives a really great sense of all the shifts and turns and changes and who's in power, who's comes back in power, and kind of, you know, the politics along with that. Okay, so I, I heard a report recently that after 9-11, when the Bush administration, this is the Bush 43, the George W. Bush administration, demanded that the Taliban give over Osama bin Laden, that the Taliban actually was willing to negotiate with the Bush administration, but the Bush administration refused to negotiate, saying this was like an all or nothing thing. So is that, have you heard that? Is that accurate? So I honestly don't remember the nitty gritty details of what's okay. been about exactly the contours of that. Sure, um, okay. At a general level, there was a real disinterest in the Bush administration in kind of negotiating with the Taliban. Mm -hmm. um, it was basically seeing, you know, your students who may be listening to this will be way too young to remember this, but in 2001, 2002, there was a real sense that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban needed to be completely destroyed. Okay. This was not, these were not groups you could do business with. It was, you know, we're gonna show after 9-11 American military power, mm -hmm. and we're just gonna basically get rid of these actors. I mean, that triggers a whole set of things in Afghanistan and Iraq, elsewhere that really shaped US foreign policy for the last 20 years. But a few things happened around this time that okay. were really important for kind of how Afghanistan develops later. One is that you end up with a political system that gets cobbled together 
you know, especially kind of late 2001 into 2002, 2003, that ends up being pretty highly centralized in terms of like formal government structure. Okay. So a lot of power ends up with the presidency in Kabul. At the same time, though, so like on paper, that's what it looks like. And there are some upsides, but also a lot of downsides that come with that. But at the same time, like actual political power is often wielded by local warlords and other often pretty unsavory actors, some of whom are officially part of the government, others of whom live in a more murky space in terms of like, are they legitimate government actors? Are these drug runners? Are these <laughs> militias? Like, who are these guys specifically? And so you end up with this kind of unfortunate blend of an overly centralized formal political system with the US giving backing to whoever shows up with, you know, claims that they can take care of the Taliban and Al Qaeda. And so this sets off these kind of like dysfunctions that persisted until the government fell, where there's an inability to create what we might think of as like, a, what's the word, like kind of a modern state structure. Consolidated. Consolidated, kind of go down to the village level, provide services, extract revenue, provide security. And that creates both a lot of resentments and grievances toward the government, but also a government that's not powerful enough to suppress insurgents or prospective insurgents, or that's able to kind of wield violence in these areas in a very selective and careful way. Okay, and that's actually not very new, right? So I'm I'm working on a research project myself, and we're looking at negotiations um, between rebel groups and the government, and we spent a lot of time looking at Afghanistan in the 80s. And one of the things that the president at the time um, Najibullah was trying to do was do separate pieces with these different warlords. So it sounds like that that system, you know, predated the U.S. intervention. And so it makes sense that that's what would happen afterward. Yeah. And so I think there part of this is the kind of the simple fact that these are actors have a lot of power. Mm -hmm. So you have to do business with them. Part of it is the U.S. in the early 2000s wasn't really sure what it wanted to do in Afghanistan. And so there are these guys who say they can help us kill Taliban and Al Qaeda, like, all right, we'll work with them. And especially with a weak government, you know, the US ends up relying heavily on these guys, but there are a couple of problems associated with that. One is they're often corrupt and not very efficient. Sure. Second, as a consequence of that, they often fuel resistance and people who maybe don't have very strong political views become more inclined toward looking to the Taliban as they start to return in kind of the mid 2000s. And then it hollows out the state from within, right? Where you don't have bureaucracies that can do a lot of things we expect state bureaucracies to do. Now, there are downsides with trying to create state bureaucracies at the same time, right? They also are trying to tax people and tell them what to do and mm. control trade, which also could generate backlash. Mm -hmm. So it's not like there's a simpler, easy answer that would have been obviously better in, in, in retrospect, given all the complexities. But this dynamic helps us also understand why we get to August 2021, where all of a sudden a bunch of local government officials and power holders end up essentially either switching sides or surrendering or cutting deals with the Taliban in this remarkably fast succession. Sure. The whole thing in the space of a few weeks, and the government basically is left defenseless and either flees or surrenders in the face of the Taliban, right? Yeah. It's the same kind of local level dynamics that have these big effects that scale up to the national level. Yeah, I, I want to go back just to a, bi a bit to the beginning of, of U.S. involvement with after the Taliban was overthrown. So the, the initial footprint of the U.S., we'll say military plus, because uh, there was CIA involved as well, 
was very light, right? So, so the first actions were airstrikes against the Taliban and, and Al Qaeda. And in terms of boots on the ground, it was special forces units, CIA, to help and you know the a group called the Northern Alliance, who was anti-Taliban. So at the very beginning, the U.S. did not commit a lot of troops, et cetera. So what, and, and you mentioned that the U.S. wasn't sure what it wanted to accomplish. So what was, was there a defined mission that, you know, that led to this small footprint? And then what happened to make that get bigger? Yeah, so I think a few things are going on. One is it's not the Bush administration doesn't have a super clear end state. And depending who, what you're we're talking about or who you're talking about, some people would want to just leave. Others just kind of want to cobble the government together with American backing. But a lot of be, kind of leaving that aside, a lot of people have become much more focused on the Iraq war, which starts in 2003. Right. And so there are a couple of different ways to think about what's happened. What is that there were these original problems that never could have been fixed? Another is that the Bush administration kind of took its eyes off the ball and focused on Iraq when it should have been focused on Afghanistan. Another is there's some other, you know, thing that could have been done that could have, you know, changed the situation. But regardless, you get a fairly limited interest and attention in the mid-2000s. The Taliban start coming back. Some of these are people who had fled to Pakistan, but a lot of others had kind of laid down arms in 2001, 2002, 2003, when it looked like you know, basically their war was over, they'd been defeated, but mm -hmm. people start remobilizing and they start to gain more influence and more power. And so by the time the Obama administration comes around, 2008, 2009, Obama has campaigned basically saying, Iraq was a huge mistake, we've got to get out of there. But in part to show his national security kind of toughness and resolve, mm -hmm. the 08 campaign, he says, you know, Afghanistan was the good war, right? This was right. the one against Al Qaeda, that people actually attacked us on 9 11. And so we're going to kind of get out of Iraq, but fix this Afghanistan situation. And so what you see in 2009, 2010, 2011 is a series of assessments and eventually a decision that's made to do what's called a surge of American forces and money and civilian agencies into Afghanistan to try to kind of shore things up. Uh, support the Afghan government, create governance in places where the Taliban have been very strong. There's a lot of fighting, a big increase in American military power aimed at kind of containing and rolling back Taliban influence in that period. Now, there's a kind of implicit theory there that what hadn't worked before was this very light footprint and, you know, kind of very focused on counterterrorism operations, right? The argument goes, well, look, if you don't build up a state structure, if you don't build up governance, that you're going to end up with these, this very weak state and a lot of actors like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda who are able to operate in Afghanistan. So let's build up the state, right? And to do that, first, we need to defeat, or not defeat, but push back to the Taliban militarily. Then we'll follow on with governance projects, civilian aid, development stuff, right? And so that, for a couple of years, is kind of a guiding motif of what the Obama administration is up to. Wait, just one second. So did after the surge, did the U.S. government actually follow up with the civilian governance projects, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, it, it seems like from a non-military back in the state's perspective that, you know, a lot of responsibility was falling on the military to make connections with local communities and, and things like that. So was the civilian diplomatic state building apparatus ever deployed 
So, I mean, there was deployment. USAID and other agencies are, are involved. There's a lot of money put into aid and development projects. I think this gets into one of these other counterfactuals. So what is what could have been done differently, if anything, in the early 2000s? And another is, well, what were your choices for course correction? So one argument is, look, we never really truly resourced and sourced and implemented what this mission would actually take. Another argument is like, oh, you could have thrown even more money at this and it really would never have gone anywhere because mm. the Taliban were very, had a lot of you know, political and social support in some areas of Afghanistan. They had this huge open sanctuary in Pakistan. The government in Kabul never was able to build the kind of effective state structure that you need. It was very corrupt, very divided. Um, and so you could have had more, you know, another trillion dollars in civilian development spending, and who knows if that would have done anything. Mm. So there are these moments or these periods in which people argue, and I think we'll always be arguing probably, if it's anything like the Vietnam War, that maybe there were other courses that could have been chosen. Mm -hmm. um, and then there'll be a counter to that, which is like, well, that wouldn't have mattered for these three or four reasons. But I think it's useful to give a sense of the possible trajectories that we saw here. Once, you know, one of the those characteristics of the Afghanistan surge is that it basically had de facto kind of a time limit. Obama was not going to commit to an open-ended, huge commitment of resources. And so if you're the Taliban, you're looking at this and you know, you're taking, you're absorbing some real losses, the government is making inroads in some areas, but you think, you know, well, what's the long-term prognosis here? How long are the Americans actually gonna keep this up? Right? And this becomes one of these overriding calculations of the following decade, which is what is America really willing to do and for how long? Mm. And what pathologies have been created or sustained in the Kabul government that will keep the Taliban in the field, right? So if you're the Taliban, you're looking at this and you may end up thinking the Americans, no matter what they say, aren't gonna stick around forever with 40,000 combat forces. And the Kabul government shows no indications of really being able to kind of create and especially sustain on its own without tons of American support like a self-sustaining, effective government that's able to do counterinsurgency, you know, first indefinitely, right? And so that's the Taliban's calculation. Again, Pakistan's providing a lot of sanctuary and support, sure. which is very, very helpful. And you've got this domestic political environment within Afghanistan. And so that sets the stage for the next decade where the U.S. is continually saying, we're going to help the Kabul government become more self-sustaining. The Kabul government says, yes, sure, fine doesn't necessarily do all the things that are necessary. American money continues to flow as the Americans continue to try to threaten, look, we'll take the money away if you don't do these reforms you need. Mm. And the Taliban city there taking a lot of losses to be clear, but thinking, you know, like we, we seem to still have a pretty good shot at this. So let's, let's stick around and see what happens. So that's kind of like the mid late 2010s is that. So, and so, so even after bin Laden, who was, you know, the leader of Al Qaeda and behind the 9-11 attack. So even after he's killed in May of 2011, the U.S. stays in Afghanistan because the Afghanistan mission is not, no longer about, I mean, the counterterrorism and counterinsurgency is more focused by that point on the Taliban than on Al Qaeda because Al Qaeda has been degraded. Is that right? Well, there's still Al Qaeda in the region and in Afghanistan. Sure. And so I think another one of these counterfactuals is what if the U.S. had declared victory after bin Laden was killed and just gone home in 2011? Mm -hmm. And said, all right, government in Kabul, here's some money, we'll keep providing some support, but now you're kind of more on your own because we've done what we need to do. That's, that's another counterfactual moment. I think yeah. the decision to stick around is a few things. One is there's still this Al Qaeda terrorism thing going, you know, calculation. But the other is the U.S. is kind of committed to supporting this Afghan government. 
And so now what do you do, right? Well, you hope that you can build up enough security forces that your commitment becomes relatively low cost and sustainable. And the government, the U.S. government is saying things like that in, you know, 2014, 2015, 2016, like our mission is not to be doing lots of active combat, but instead to be kind of backstopping Afghan forces that will be doing the fighting. And so we'll be able to contain the Taliban and keep eyes on Al-Qaeda without having to put a lot of U.S. combat forces in harm's way. Um, and so this is very, at least in some ways, very reminiscent of, of what's called Vietnamization okay. under Richard Nixon okay. during the U.S. war in Vietnam, which is like the U.S. public doesn't want a bunch of American boys die. But we also would kind of like to keep this government afloat. So we're going to focus primarily, at least publicly, on building up these local indigenous security forces that can do the fighting that we want them to do. And so that is kind of where we end up by 2017, 18, 19. Let's take a break right there. We'll come back and pick up from that point in time. You're listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and I'm speaking with University of Chicago political scientist Paul Staniland about Afghanistan. We mentioned and spoke about the, the surge and then and the timeline on the surge that Obama never intended to stick around long-term with large numbers of troops. The end of combat, the combat mission was actually declared in 2014 and moved on to what you were saying of, of building up the Afghan resources. So in, in February of 2020, the Trump administration signs an agreement with the Taliban to withdraw all US troops by May of 2021. In return, the Taliban agrees not to target US forces and not to let Al Qaeda regain a foothold in the country. So first of all, how long had the U.S. been engaged in talks with the Taliban? One. Two, how involved was the Afghan government in these kinds of talks? And three, why do you think the Trump administration made this deal? I don't know the answer to exact. So there are back channel things happening at various points over the course of the war. Okay. Um, some directly talking to the Taliban, some that seem to be more about kind of the Afghan government and stuff. And so I don't want to sit like, I don't know exactly which sure. things happened directly, but there's this process that starts to develop in the late 2010s okay. um, where Trump is looking at least publicly looks like he wants to get out. Right. So this is part of kind of so moving from Obama, who wants this low footprint off the headlines, you know, Afghanization strategy. And then Trump comes in and part of his critique of the American foreign policy establishment is that we're often these losing wars overseas that, you know, are bad for America and basically trying to help a bunch of foreigners at a very heavy cost. Right. So it's, a, it's coming from a different angle, mm -hmm. but also moving toward this, like, well, what exactly are we doing here? Okay. Kind of logic or, or conclusion. And so Trump starts 
making noises about getting out. And so this, against the backdrop of previous various kind of murky back-channel communications with various Taliban figures going back years, opens a new negotiating process. And so eventually you end up with a guy named uh, Zalmay Khalilzad be kind of a, a, appointed as the special envoy essentially for trying to figure out how the US can extricate itself. Now an ideal might be to have a three-way agreement between the US, the government in Kabul and the Taliban. Okay. Taliban, however, have very little interest in meaningful negotiation with the Kabul government. And so a lot of that- Why is that? Well, the, for a few reasons. One is any deal that had to include the interest of the Kabul government would not be what the Taliban are interested in because it would probably need to involve accommodation of the existing power structure, the existing state, the existing government. Okay. But the Taliban view is illegitimate, corrupt, opposed to them, right? And so in some ways it's easier to say, let's just do business with the Americans. They wanna go home. So, and they're the ones who have the most effective military forces and everything else. And so, yeah, let's figure out what we can do with them. And maybe the Afghan government will get involved at some point, maybe not, but let's see what we can do. From the American perspective, this could, there's a best case scenario in which somehow you shepherded a real peace process that ends up in some power sharing agreement and transitional setup between the Afghan government and the Taliban or something. Okay. Or this, and, and what ends up kind of happening is this becomes a fig leaf for the Americans to get out come what may. And that's what ends up happening, which is the Trump administration signs this deal. There's kind of language about this being, you know, withdrawal being conditions-based, but there's also a timeline that gets built in. And wasn't one of the conditions that they actually sit down and talk to the Kabul government, which they do, but nothing happens? Yeah, I think, in, I don't know, sometime in 2019 or 2020, there's okay. very conclusive talks between the Kabul government and the Taliban that basically go nowhere for the right. reasons, right? Okay. So like the U.S. makes noises about okay. all of this, but basically is looking to get out. That's, you know, I mean, there's intricacies, different meetings, different sure. statements made, communiques, but like from 30,000 feet up, most of that is just noise. Uh, the U.S. basically is looking to find a way out, and this becomes a potentially promising path. So, <laughs> I mean, this, this seems to be a little bit of history repeating itself, right? Like the U.S. is involved in a foreign policy action. It's not popular at home. It loses support. The U.S. is looking for a way to get out. It signs a deal and it gets out, but follow, foreign policy objectives haven't been reached. I mean, this sounds like Vietnam. And, and is it, I mean, I know we need to be careful about historical analogies because details are different and they're not the same thing, but I mean, yeah, <laughs> this I mean, sounds so familiar. Right. So the 20, the February 2020 agreement basically is this kind of thrown together, in my assessment from, you know, kind of thrown together. So it simultaneously commits to a timeline for the US and NATO troops to leave, which is okay. like 14 months. That's how we end up kind of with this general timeline of withdrawal, but also it's conditions-based at the same time. And so it's kind of like gives the US a lot of, it's messy, right? What does it mean for there to be a conditions-based withdrawal? It basically means if the US decides it wants to leave, it's going to leave, right? Yes. And there's this timeline floating around that may or may not be enforceable. But what this lets the U.S. do is say is, is have the Taliban not really attack it very much. So the U.S. is not taking heavy combat losses. Mm -hmm. uh, it was involved in very heavy fighting, especially airstrikes in 2019, 2020 against the Taliban. Um, but the U.S. starts to draw down its forces. Okay. And that in, in return, 
the Taliban makes some claims, right? That it will prevent groups from using Afghan soil. It will promise to sever ties with terrorist organizations. There'll be a start of Afghan, intra-Afghan negotiations. So that's between the Taliban and the government in Kabul. Okay. A lot of those things like, the Taliban largely adheres to the part about not attacking US forces. Mm -hmm. There's some messiness around that, but basically they're letting the US get out but they really ramp up attacks against the Kabul government, Afghan national security forces of various kinds, local okay. national security forces. And so what we end up with is the Biden administration, well, Joe Biden specifically saying, I want out of there. Like, I don't care. I want out. Right. And didn't he want out in 2009 when he was vice president and, and advising Obama about whether or not to surge? Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know Joe Biden, but based on the <laughs> He basically views all of this as, you know, every year the American generals come along and say, you know, this year will be different, that we are making great progress, blah, blah, blah. You know, and then the next year it's the exact same picture. And the year after that, it's basically the same picture. There's no real end game, right? The generals, American generals will always say they could do something and come up with some plan and have a bunch of PowerPoints and, you know, whatever. Biden doesn't really believe it. He wants out. Okay. He thinks this is a waste of American time and money in a, a war that basically can't be won in any clear way, right? And so there are these intra-Afghan talks that start off in December 20, or sorry, September 2020, but nothing ends up coming of those, especially. And so Biden decides this is a weak local government, the Taliban aren't going away, let's get out. And so that is basically kind of, you know, the, 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 the picture of how we end up to, to where we go. Okay, so that February 2020 agreement uh, between the Trump administration and the Taliban had U.S. troops withdrawing by May of 2021. But in April, Obama, uh, Obama Biden says that um, he's going to extend that withdrawal deadline to August 31st. He wants to be out of Afghanistan by the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which is right around the corner. So, but so August 31st, U.S. is out of there. So I have a lot of questions about this. I saw on your Twitter feed, actually, a bunch of polls saying that most Americans agree with getting out of Afghanistan, but are not in support of how the U.S. got out of Afghanistan. So I have I have a couple questions about that. First, in April, Biden says we're, we're out in August 31st. Why? wasn't the, or was the process of evacuating American citizens, these people who are qualified for special immigrant visas, these are the Afghan nationals who worked with military, media, nonprofits, et cetera, who felt that they would be targeted by the Taliban uh, should they come to power. So did evacuation start then? And if not, why not? Because it seemed like a long time passed. And then in the last like month was all this activity in getting civilians out. So do you know or have any insight into what, what was the problem with using a four month time period instead of a six week period? So this is one of the big areas in which different parts of the Biden administration and its critics have kind of argued, including Biden administration people leaking about, you know, who was doing what wrong. So a few things went on here. I can't really assess their relation, like which was most important or whatever, but a okay. few things happened. 
One is, I think, probably the biggest is US intelligence, for the most part, so goes the Biden administration's claim. US intelligence assessments were the cobble would hold out for some longer period of time. Okay. So they were basically counting on the fact that Kabul would, the government would keep fighting it. It was probably going to lose eventually, but it would be like after the Soviets left. There was a, basically a three-year period in which right. the Afghan government, there were still people who were fighting for the government and the government really wanted to hold on to power. Or they'd come up with all kinds of ways to stay, in, you know, stay afloat. They thought that's what it would look like. So there's plenty of time there, right? Mm. Um, something the Biden administration has said in its defense is that the Trump administration had really weakened the process for processing visas mm. and the whole US immigration system. So those are a couple arguments that come out. Uh, what is not good for the Biden administration and the intelligence community? Again, there's a debate over who said what, but basically that they thought they had plenty of time. The other is not good for the Trump administration, which hollowed out a lot of the this procedural stuff, the, like the logistics and administration of processing these. Now, another argument the Biden people have offered is that Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, did not want a massive exodus. They, he didn't want kind of immediate American airlift out because it would show that the war was lost and mm. it would trigger panic. So everybody would then say, well, why should we fight for the Afghan government if the Americans are immediately evacuating everybody? They must know that we're about to lose. And so that would trigger this cascading process in which the Afghan government already facing serious problems would basically you know, be done. And it, it, that would be the signal of its defeat. You know, I don't know how to weigh all of those different justifications mm -hmm. or explanations, mm -hmm. but those are some of the things that were going on. Uh, it's clear that something happened that was very, very problematic. Uh, intelligence being misread or the Biden, Joe Biden kind of ignoring intelligence and not speeding up the process you know, bureaucracy in the background. And also, you know, what is the top priority of the, of the Biden administration? It's not dealing with the war in Afghanistan, it's infrastructure, it's dealing mm. with Congress, it's COVID. And so, you know, the US public honestly does not care very much about Afghanistan. And I think the political priorities of the Biden administration align with that very clearly. They weren't going to sink a bunch of time and effort into figuring this all out if they don't need to. And then that's how you get to the scramble in the last few weeks when all of a sudden everything falls apart. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so about the things falling apart. In early July, the U.S. military leaves Bagram Air Base, which had been kind of, it's outside of Kabul, and it's kind of the main staging point for operations in Afghanistan. And it's an air base, right? So flights can take off and all this stuff. Do you have, I mean, and if you don't, it's fine, but do you have a sense of why they, I mean, is it still this like, oh, the Afghan government will hold on, so it doesn't matter if we're not controlling Bagram, it's not going to be taken over immediately or whatever, but like, why leave an airbase when you have to airlift people out? I mean, the Kabul airport has like one runway right <laughs> and this is something that that complicates evacuation efforts um, when they really get underway is that it, it's not like you can have you know <laughs> tons of things happening at once so so I mean again if if this is too in the weeds that's fine but like it's never made sense to me why the U.S. would leave this very strongly fortified base before they were ready to leave completely. So I there there's a level of nitty grittiness I'm not I can't really speak to here. Okay, My fair. broad understanding is something along the following lines. 
the Biden administration was pushing down U.S. troop numbers. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of it is you can't keep this all staffed and running. Right. So if you're pushing troop forces, force numbers down, then you end up with having to leave places. That's one thing that's happening. Um, Another is there is this idea, well, the Afghan government now has a nice air base for itself. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like what why would we need to stay there? Mm. A third, right, they should, like, they should be able to handle it. This is a, you know, a pretty sweet gig for them. And so I think that's, that's part of what's going on here. Another is that, and I can't speak to this, but sure. I have seen various disputes about how useful Bagram actually would be for things like mass civilian evacuations. Mm. Like how do you get people there? And, you know, what's okay. better? Logistically, I can't speak to that. Right, okay. And again, in the background of all of this is they don't expect there to be a rapid, massive airlift, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, maybe we could, you know, ramp up some of these SIB evacuations, get some interpreters out over the next six to nine months. But this idea that tens of thousands of people would be converging on an airport in the space of a few days as everything falls apart, I think is just not, as far as I can tell, at least based on press reporting, what the, the U.S. government is thinking about. It's just like not, you know, the pressing priority here. What do you think is kind of some some broad brush reasons why the Afghan military disappeared, right? Kind of faded yeah. into the word work. What, what happened? Uh, I think there are a few things that, again, well, people will be kind of talking about and arguing about this for, for years. I think sure. there are a few long-term dynamics that are going on here. Um, one is that there was a, a huge amount of corruption and political division within the Afghan military. Um, it was just a really problematic structure for, for years, right? There had been this effort to massively expand the security forces as part of this kind of Afghanization process in the early mid 2010s. Okay. And it's really hard to do that. Really hard to stand up a 300,000 person service, a force that's well-trained and competent and capable amidst huge corruption. So there are these like ghost soldiers who just mm. you know, appear on payrolls, but basically their pay is being pocketed by commanders. That's, mm. so there's just a huge amount of issues with that. I think that's like the big, there, there's politicization within the military. Uh, you know, there's not a huge amount of, so there's like a big bunch of problems within the military in this political command structure. Another thing is the Taliban have continued to be very effective. They've been putting huge losses on Afghan forces. And so, I mean, a lot of Afghan soldiers and police had fought for a long time and a lot of them got killed mm-hmm. or, you know, basically didn't really feel like they were going to be able to keep fighting in any particular way, um, you know, effectively. So you see a lot of basically war weariness as guys who've been fighting for a long time aren't getting paid. They're not getting ammunition. They're not getting food. And so like, why keep fighting under those circumstances? Mm. Now, this leads us to a third thing. The Taliban apparently started reaching out to various local commanders and kind of authority figures you know, either offering a deal that, you know, on favorable terms or a deal that was more like surrender, or we're going to kill you. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of guys start deserting, slipping away, changing sides at the local level in ways that it seems like the U.S. and Afghan governments didn't really fully appreciate mm. how quickly this could cascade, right? This could trigger this whole process of side switching and defection that was yeah. not on people's agendas. Yeah, because I mean, the Taliban, I mean, not only the speed with which the Taliban like took over, but also largely without firing a shot, which is which is kind of how they did it last time, right? In 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 ninety four to ninety six, where they basically said surrender or we'll kill everybody, and so people surrendered, and so they didn't actually have to do a lot of fighting to take over. 
Yeah, I mean, I think so. This is in the background. There was a, there's been a lot of fighting for the last twenty years. Though. Sure. So this was a much longer process than the Taliban's takeover between 1994 and 1996, where kind of the Taliban, though they're built around people who had fought and networks and things that existed before that, as kind of a freestanding organization, they're able to take over Afghanistan with kind of remarkable speed. This, you know, this has been a very bloody, brutal war for two decades now. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, so on the one hand, it's true, it all crumbled very quickly. On the other hand, both sides have suffered enormous losses. And so it wasn't that the Taliban didn't have to fight. It was that in these last few weeks, kind of the accumulation of past fighting, the fact that the Afghan, and I should add, you know, the Afghan military clearly felt that with the Americans were not going to provide any real support. Mm. Right? So there's this sense, whether justified or not, or you know, whatever you want to argue about, that there's this sense that the Americans are leaving us to our own devices, we're being abandoned, right? So that's a further spur. Why fight? You know, the Americans are gone, your own government's divided and corrupt. The Taliban have Pakistani support and, you know, are resurgent. So why should we die for this cause that appears to be increasingly lost? So at that point, you start to see these triggers and, and people changing sides. And it, and it doesn't help that the president flees the country ahead of the Taliban taking over Kabul. Now, in my mind, that's completely understandable, because if you go back to 1996, President Najibullah, who, who had been kind of in exile within a UN compound in Afghanistan, he had been the, the president during the Marxist regime, the, the Taliban basically kidnapped him, tortured and murdered him and desecrated his body and put his head on a spike, right? So, I mean, I think it's kind of understandable why Ashraf Ghani, the president, fled, but that certainly didn't inspire much confidence in any of the forces on the ground. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of reporting about like what exactly happened in those last couple of days in Kabul. And I, I don't know exactly which details sure. right or, or not. But basically, by the time these major cities had fallen and Kabul was left, it was really only a matter of time before the Taliban were going to take over. And then there's questions about exactly what deals were on the table. Had Ghani agreed to something and then he left without telling anybody? Kind of mm. like, what? Did he take money? Did he not? I think, you know, we'll get more clarity on this in the months and years to come. But sure. yeah, it becomes clear toward the end that the government is 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 done, basically. And so everybody is looking up and see that this is happening. That's deeply affected their own calculations on the ground. And that's kind of where we end up. OK, so I have a counterfactual for you talking about the the withdrawal. If Trump had won re-election, and was president, what do you think the withdrawal would have looked like? I mean, again, obviously, we don't know, right? This is speculation. Would, do you think the Trump administration would have tried to evacuate Afghan allies? I guess I'm asking because I think it's fair to criticize the process of the withdrawal. But I also think that we, it's not without context, right? I mean, one of the reasons why more special immigrant visas hadn't been processed was because the Trump administration had very definite attitudes about immigration from Muslim majority countries, et cetera. So do you think that the Trump administration would have, how do you think their withdrawal would have looked compared to what we ended up seeing? just your you best know, guess. Honestly, I really, I mean, I think there are a couple different things that, 
So I, I'd be surprised if like the Trump administration was deeply moved by, you know, immigration that's sanctuary for Afghans, right? We can see prominent people from the Trump administration say, what are we taking all these people for? Refugees who shouldn't come here. So I think that it's very possible that you wouldn't see even a last ditch effort. Um, on the other hand, Trump was obsessed with optics, right? And this mm. kind of Saigon 1975 scuttle, you know, who knows what he would have decided to do. You know, I'm a political scientist, so I'm going to say that the basic structure of the situation was such that this was not going to end particularly well one way or another. Mm -hmm. The nitty gritty, who knows, between Trump versus Biden, but probably something like this was going to end up happening at some point. The question was just how bad it was going to be. Hmm. Let's take a break. <laughs> You're listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. Welcome back to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros. You can reach me with comments and questions on Twitter, at Dr. Floros. I'm speaking with University of Chicago political scientist Paul Staniland about the current situation in Afghanistan and what we can expect going forward. I have a lot of questions. We, we're running out of time. We can't go over all of them. So I'm going to give you a hodgepodge of questions and let you answer the ones you want to answer. So one, is the Taliban even the legitimate, or not the legitimate, but the recognized government of, of Afghanistan? What is the prospects for any kind of power sharing, or is the Taliban just going to run the show? What is the situation for women going to look like? There was an announcement this morning that they are not going to be allowed to play sports. <laughs> And this is a whole nother topic, but ISIS Khorasan, right? What's their deal? How's that going to affect things? And will Afghanistan be a safe haven for place for groups that want to do the U.S. harm? So any, all, however much you want to tackle any of those questions. Yeah. So the, the question of recognition is, is, is a live one. So the Taliban want recognition as kind of the legitimate government, but, you know, we'll see who, who gives that recognition and over what period of time. So that's a live issue. Some countries I think will move to recognize early, but I think a lot are just gonna wait and see what happens, which okay. leads to the second big issue, which is what will kind of Taliban rule look like? And so far the initial signs are, you know, not surprisingly not very encouraging in terms of inclusion and power sharing. The interim mm -hmm. government thus far is kind of dominated by figures from the Taliban. Yes. Including people who have been designated as, you know, high level international terrorists by the US and UN. Yep. So you know, this is not looking like a particularly inclusive regime. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll see, you know, if there's a change from this interim structure to kind of what they claim will be the permanent new governing authority. But so far, it looks like a wartime organization that has seized the state and is kind of turning its wartime leadership into the new governance structure. That then has knock-on effects for things like human rights, civil liberties, the role of women. I'm not, I can't really speculate about what that will look like. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't, I mean, there's been some talk that the Taliban have learned a lot from the previous time around. It's certainly possible that, that there will be a somewhat more relaxed environment compared to the 90s and early 2000s, but that may end up looking more like contemporary Iran, right? Which is still going to be maybe better than 2001 Afghanistan, but we're not looking at liberal and inclusive in any way. Sure. I think, right? I mean, who knows, but that's right. a safe bet. And so that is not, at least from my perspective, very encouraging at all. Okay. But we'll see. 
And then the question of there are other groups. So there's an ISIS splinter group that pulled away kind of disgruntled Taliban figures in the mid 2010s and since. And these are very radical folks who view the Taliban as a bunch of sellouts who have basically ended up doing America's bidding. And so there have been very intense clashes between the Taliban and the Islamic State in, in Afghanistan. So they, they really dislike each other. And so I suspect what the Taliban will say is, look, if you want to control these ultra radicals, you need to deal with us. We are the ones who can deal with these guys. They will also, however, present a challenge to the Taliban's ability to claim that it's bringing law and order and stability to Afghanistan. So I suspect you're going to see some pretty bloody clashes and target, you know, repression and purges aimed at trying to get rid of these ISIS cells and ISIS supporters. It's, it's hard to know how that will shake out. Then there's a question of Al-Qaeda, which is different than ISIS and also right. different than ISIS. And, you know, which has had relations with various figures within the Taliban. This could prove tricky for the Biden administration if you see attacks against the U.S. homeland or U.S. interests that can be plausibly traced to Afghanistan. On the other hand, it may be that the Taliban try to keep the raids on al-Qaeda's more aggressive target of the U.S. because then this could be asking for trouble again. But these are really hard to know. Sure. But those are like the questions I'm keeping an eye on or the issues I'm keeping an eye on going forward. Fantastic. Thank you so much to Professor Paul Sanaland from the University of Chicago Department of Political Science. Maybe we'll have you back in a couple months, see where we are. But thank okay. you. Great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros. Please send me questions, comments, or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes to me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. Join us next time in the politics classroom when I speak with a California expert on the recall election of Governor Gavin Newsom, what to expect there and what might California look like going forward. But for now, that's all I've got. Class dismissed.